It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. 3-1 pitch, swing and a drive. Deep to right field, way up there, way out of here. Goodbye baseball. Eight strikeouts for the King tonight and make it... 23 consecutive scoreless innings for Phoenix. Strike three called on the outside corner, and there it is. It's time for the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. Kyle Seager, that just happened. Thank you very much. Now, here's your host, Gary Hill. And welcome back to the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. Gary Hill here. Thanks for coming back once again at Mariners Pod. Well, that was a tough loss for the Mariners last night. Although, I think this time of year, we're just days away from September. When you're in the race, I think at any point, you can label any loss a tough loss. But this one, I think, especially in context, is really difficult because of what you're going to have to face the next couple of days as well. So the Mariners lose to the White Sox last night in difficult fashion, and we'll go through that in just a second we'll also take a look at what else the Mariners will face this weekend and why that loss is so difficult when you consider who they're facing next and how much more difficult this series becomes so the Mariners drop game one of this four game series against the White Sox Shannon Dreyer is going to be by with another feature Josh Kearns a great feature on the way and also something I'm really kind of interested in exploring a little bit more We have seen Kyle Seager take advantage of 3-0 pitches this year. And the Mariners have been aggressive on 3-0 pitches, but still, they're one of the leaders in putting 3-0 pitches uh, in play. But it doesn't happen very often, and it doesn't happen very often in baseball in general. Should it happen more often? Conversation with Jay Buhner on the way about that. I think it's pretty pretty interesting to look at when when you dive into some of the numbers and really the outstanding numbers on 3-0 pitches. But then again, it's such a risk-reward because nothing looks worse than a 3-0 pop-up along the way. But we'll take a look at that. I'm sure you have your own opinions about 3-0 pitches as well. Should you swing? Shouldn't you swing? It's, I think, an interesting scenario for me. But you look at the Mariners, the loss last night. So they've lost three games in a row now. 67 and 60 on the season. They are seven and a half back of the Texas Rangers in the division. You take a look at the wild card, Boston and Toronto again. They're tied for the top spot in the East. They're tied for the top wild card. They've both lost two games in a row. Baltimore lost again as well. So good news all the way around there. The bad news is Detroit, they've won four games in a row. They've now leapt over the Mariners. They're two games back of the wild card spot. The Mariners are a game back of Detroit. Everyone behind the Mariners won. Houston, KC, Yankees have won a couple in a row. KC has won. Houston has won. Everyone's on a winning streak in the American League except for Minnesota behind the Mariners. So Houston is a game back of the M's along with Kansas City, a game back of the M's. The 
Yankees a game and a half back of the Mariners. So it just continues to be a big uh, continues to be a big mash of teams in the American League, and the Mariners try and get back on a winning streak today. So. I think the difficult part and why last night's loss was so difficult because here the Mariners come in today, they've lost three in a row, and you have to stare at Chris Sale. And, of course, the other difficulty, Kyle Seeger not in the lineup yesterday, which just hasn't happened. You go back to 2012, coming into the game yesterday, Robinson Cano and Kyle Seeger have played the most major league games in baseball since 2012. Mariners have not missed Kyle Seager very often. He hasn't missed many games very often. When he does miss, they miss him. We'll see if he's in the lineup today. It was good to see Nelson Cruz in the lineup. But now they have to face Chris Sale. Now, Felix Hernandez is on the other side, and they're going to need a very Felix start against Chris Sale. So this should be an outstanding matchup, Sale against Felix Hernandez. Now, Saturday, it doesn't get easier again as the Mariners will have to face Quintana. And I contend, I think in the American League, for any one team, you're facing back-to-back pitchers, I don't think it gets any more difficult than Sale and Quintana. I think they're the best one-two punch going in the American League right now. And the Mariners right now have to face them back-to-back. So it's Miranda against Quintana. That is going to be a difficult matchup. Quintana, one of the best there is. And then on Sunday, we'll see where the series falls. Walker... It's Rodon, the young lefty, who's 4-8 and eight with a 4-0-2 ERA. So make no mistake, especially after the loss last night, this is a very difficult series for the Mariners at a time when they really need to get things going. Uh, a couple games back in the wild card, all the other teams around them. So we'll see what Felix has tonight against the White Sox. Should be a great ball game. They matched up once uh, last year, and of course, Felix has been really, really good as of late. Now, the difficult thing, uh, a few difficult parts about last night. The Mariners take a lead early, which was great, but Paxton gave it back. He gave up three in the bottom of the first. He was not sharp early, but he really did get it dialed in. The 2 2. Swing and a miss, strike three. Burns it past him 98 miles an hour from Paxton who has maybe started to settle in a little bit. He strikes out the side in order. What a way to finish the bottom of the third. So he ends up going five innings, seven hits, three runs, one walk, and five strikeouts in the game. Uh, just trying to use a few more off-speed pitches to kind of get them off the fastball a little bit. Um, you know, guys are making some great plays in the field behind me. Um, you know, Aoki, Aoki in the first, and then Robbie, I think, was the second and the third. He made that play on that ball come in. Um, that really helped. And, um, you know, just... Physically, does the elbow feel okay? Yeah, no, no pain, no tightness. So that was good. Um, so no issues there. Let's so get back to work and tighten some things up and get ready for next time. Okay. A lot of ground balls the first inning. Yeah, they were just you know that's the way baseball goes sometimes. They're, they're going to find holes. Um, you know, I was I was missing my spots though, so that you know kind of happens. But uh, you know, I'll work on getting back to hitting my spots and getting ready to be. Yeah, absolutely. That was huge. Um, ducked that one, didn't get hit by that one, which is good. Um, and then Robbie was right there, which is awesome. Um, that was a big time getting out of that inning and kind of getting reset and uh, kind of just going from there. We can probably kind of just get back in the rhythm here and get, get into a five-day routine now. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I think uh, getting out there and throwing 
was 91 pitches. Um, you know, I'll be able to get in my routine, get a good bullpen, work on the things that uh, I didn't do very well this game, and, uh, and get back out there. So he got in the groove, and then the Mariners would take the lead over the White Sox. The 2-1 pitch, swing and a well-hit ball, deep into the gap in right center field, going, going, goodbye baseball. Holy cannoli, Robinson Cannoli's 29th home run of the year has tied up this game at 3-3. This for his pitch, swinging this is cracked over the middle, right over the shortstop, Anderson's glove, and it's into left center field. Cruz has come down to score. Lind is rounding. Here's a throw. It's cut. Lind slides, spikes first. He crosses home and scores as well. On the very first pitch from Dan Jennings, he coughs up two inherited runs. Charged to Renato, and the Mariners have really opened things up. It's now 6-3 to three Mariners as Martin wastes no time at all. One in the fourth, three in the sixth. Things look good heading into the seventh, but an error opened the door for the White Sox. An error to start the inning, and then a big hit by Chicago by Frazier with two outs to drive home two runs. This game was tied, and that just the error to start off the inning really hurt the Mariners as the White Sox score three in the bottom of the seventh, and then the score stayed tied going into the ninth. Vince was on, and the White Sox would walk it off. The 2-1 pitch swing and a line drive down the left field line, a fair ball into the corner. Here comes Eaton rounding third. He will score, and the ball game is over. Walk-off single by Todd Frazier, and the White Sox walk it off here in the bottom of the ninth inning. They win it 7-6. to six. Two teams that have played a ton of one-run games this year, so probably not a shock that they played another one-run game. The Mariners... <coughs> <coughs> The Mariners on the bad side of this one, though, and they fall 7-6 to six in game one of the series. Here's Scott Service. Well, that was, uh, you know, where we needed to go. Um, I think, obviously, with, with Pax only getting through five innings, uh, we were going to be a little stretched uh, tonight. And, you know, we are going to have to use you know, probably three or four guys to hopefully lock it down there. But, uh, you know, it ran in a little trouble in the seventh. Um, you know, big hit by Frazier. Couldn't, couldn't get out of that one. And then, you know, we've used Nick a lot lately, but, you know, in this situation on the road, try to hold out, uh, you know, close until you get a lead, um, which we didn't have much, you know, uh, bullpen depth at that point. But, you know, that was a thought behind it. Paxton, 31 pitches in the first inning. Yeah, it, it really, really hurt. Yeah, it really hurt having that, that, that long first inning and, and running the 30-some pitches up in that inning. So, uh, you know, I, I thought he actually threw the ball pretty well uh, after the first inning. They were very aggressive, obviously, and, and right on his stuff. So after that, he, he settled in, you know, he got through five. Uh, not ideal for where we were at bullpen-wise tonight. But, you know, we still had a three-run lead, and you know, I felt good about where we were at at that point. For Paxson, was it a matter of just finding his feel or his touch after that first inning? Well, they were very aggressive. They, they came out hacking. They were, they were on the fastball, and, and they didn't miss anything. They, they hit some hard ground balls. They got through the infield. So, you know, it was just one of those innings. But he did settle in there and, and uh, you know, did a pretty good job for us. A little bit short today. That means tomorrow it would look like it might even be a tougher situation. Yeah, you know, we got to... I need uh, starters to get deep, uh, you know, tomorrow because we are a little thin with the extra position player here to, to cover up the, the Seager injury. So that's just where we're at. You know, it, it happens at certain points of the year. You know, you get thin, you need guys to step up, and uh, you know, I thought we were in a good spot tonight, up three, just you know, weren't able to hold them down. Kind of in that situation, is it better to go one inning with a bunch of guys than it is? That's what I was hoping to do tonight, and it just didn't just didn't work out that way. I'm in, Mr. Stroman. 
law of averages catching up your book then a little bit, or is it just um, uh, overwork or overuse? Yeah, you know, I mean, that guys have been very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Wilhelmson had been down for three days, so you put him out there, and you know, he had a little back issue. So uh, one was probably all we're going to go with him tonight. But you know, it, it was lined up good. You know, the, we had the air in the seventh, and then a walk. You know, and those things they will bite you. You know, you give guys teams more than three outs in an inning, and usually come back to get you, and, and it did tonight. Yeah, no, played very well defensively. Uh, a couple nice catches in the outfield, and we, we certainly needed them tonight, no, no doubt. So the Ams will look to bounce back today against Chicago. Well, now we're going to hand things over to Shannon Dreyer. You know, when we talked to you when you did go on the DL, it was just really kind of it was a conversation that I've heard quite a few times throughout the years. And the guys in this game, there are really no breaks. You battle through everything, and sometimes you get down a road where you almost forget what it was like to feel normal, and you don't realize uh-huh. that you're a little bit hurt, and, and that something needs to be addressed. Right. I mean, I don't know a single pitcher, for that matter, if not a position player, that could honestly say they feel 100% outside mm-hmm. of their first couple of days in spring training, maybe. You know, you always have some little, something nagging a little bit here and there, so there's times you don't know if you should say something or not, but I think when it comes down to a point where you see your stuff kind of diminishing. Um, you know, and your velocity dropping, whatever it may be, you know, you, if you know something's not right and it's not getting better, you know, then it's time to say something. And that was my case. You know, usually if I have a nagging thing, it gets better over time mm-hmm. with some work, but it just only got worse. So, and so you, you take some time, you get that right. And what is the difference physically? I mean, how different does that feel for you? Well, I mean, I feel the world different. I can actually put my socks and shoes on without it being a battle, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I was just lifting my leg was a struggle. You know, I was kind of bent over like that. And for me, it was my plant leg. So everything, all my power comes off when my foot strikes the ground. You know, I drive everything off that. And I just didn't have any strength. And I ended up throwing all arm. And, you know, after a while, you know, it takes a, it takes a toll on your shoulder as well. So I started getting a lot more sore than usual. And, and my velocity wasn't the same. And the life of my pitches were the biggest thing. It wasn't even close to what it is right now. So what was the process for you and just kind of just to stop for a little bit? And then... Yeah, just to try to let the frustration go. And then at the same time, when I first went on the DL, I watched a lot of video of when things were good. You know, I watched when, you know, I'm, I like, I'm a field pitcher. So when I pitched against the Yankees earlier this year as a day game, my first save of the year, actually, I felt, I remember how I felt that game because the ball was just jumping out of my hand. So I was looking at the little things I was doing there to, to have that feeling again. So that way when I did start throwing, I'd practice it in my throwing program and in bullpens and, you know, in the minor league games as well. Okay, I've got to get into that a little bit. Feeling exactly what? Uh, just the way the ball felt in your hand, the way you felt? Uh, just what, what goes? Exactly. The way I felt mentally but okay. also physically. You know, when my foot hits the ground, that's when everything happens for me. And um, I wanted to see, you know, what it looked like when my foot struck the ground, how – um, you know, my arm slot, first of all, and then how the ball was moving out of my hand. And typically when I can see the movement of the ball, I can remember, you know, what I did on those pitches um, to get me to that point. So I uh, just try to keep dwelling on that and, you know, have that ingrained in my mind. That way when I do throw again, I can, you know, try to mimic that same feeling. And when I, when I finally find it after who knows how many throws, I try to repeat it. That's, that's good to be able to have that and have that yeah. to go to, even if it does take a little while to get to it. Your first game back, three pitches, three sliders, if I remember, just very quick, one, two, three. Uh, what did you see in that? Yeah, um, you know, they put me in a – it could have been a bad situation. You were up by three runs, and I didn't want to let that run a second score. So, um, you know, they, they wanted three sliders to a guy that struggled with sliders. I faced him in the past. Okay. And uh, so, sure enough, you know, I just had to put him down and away. And, you know, I was – 
know, I put him in good locations to where he couldn't do any damage. It was fun to see you against the Yankees. Another efficient, this time it was an inning, 12 pitches. But, I mean, to see you run out of the bullpen, the efficiency and just kind of the mentality that you had in there, too. It from the press box. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, when, I, when I'm feeling great, you know, mentally it goes a long ways as well. So, I, you know, as long as I'm feeling well and this hip holds up, you know, confidence-wise, it shouldn't be an issue. And um, you know, in that series, especially, you know, the um, they had, it was Sanchez, right? He was just doing ton of damage against yeah. us. So, of course, that's the first guy I have to face. You know, <laughs> but just watching his last homer, I saw him diving across the plate. So I wanted to, you know, pitch him backwards and then stick a fastball in on him just to keep him off balance. I hope they keep that tape. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I just, you know, I guess I was just fortunate because I, you know, I saw Akuma make a pretty good pitch to him down and away, and he put it up in the bleachers. It was incredible. So I mean, those are those are one of those times where you just got to tip your hat. You know, yeah. make a good pitch, and you put a good swing on it. Oh, we'll deal with that again next year. <laughs> Thank right. you, Steve. <laughs> yeah, you got it. And here's Josh Kearns, another tremendous piece. When you go in the press box at Safeco Field or in the locker room, you generally see the same old faces among the reporters. And in some cases, I mean that both literally and figuratively. But some sports scribes better watch their backs because there's a new kid in town gunning for their jobs. And when I say kid, I mean kid. I remember the first baseball game I went to with my dad. We got a foul ball. It was, it was one of the greatest days of my life. Matt Eisner was only five at the time. He's been a baseball lover his whole life. And when his mom was trying to figure out how to keep him motivated for his schoolwork during the summer, she used that passion to her advantage. She said that I could watch more baseball on TV each night for night games because I couldn't stay up too that late in exchange if I wrote a paragraph. So Matt wrote that one paragraph and then he kept writing and writing and writing. We read his paragraph and we said, huh, this is kind of good. And it surprised us. <laughs> uh, we thought that our friends and family might be interested in reading um, what he had to say because he had sort of a unique take on the game. And it, our friends and family enjoyed reading it. So we got him a website and a Twitter account and people, other people started enjoying reading his observations and it sort of took off from there. Did it ever. The Washington, D.C. youngster started getting a lot more attention as he shared his unique take on Major League Baseball. And within a couple of years, he had thousands of followers on Twitter and his blog, Matt's Bats. They now include big league players and big-time sports reporters, and that's gotten him invites to stadiums all over the country, including Safeco Field, where he visited during the last homestand. I've been to Fenway Park in Boston, Wrigley Field, Petco Park, AT&T Park, Nationals Park, Oriole Park, PNC Park, um, Citizens Bank Park, Marlins Park, and now Safeco Field. I'm trying to think if I went to any more. Yankee, Yankee Stadium, Yankee Stadium yeah. City Field. Pretty cool for a 12-year-old kid, especially when Major League Baseball takes notice. August 2013, just after my birthday. Um, surprise, got an email. We like your stuff. We want you to be an MLB, MLB blogger. And um, we were like, yes, we'll take the offer. So we just... Like the blog itself just took off after there and it's led to a lot of really cool opportunities. 
I'll say, like getting full access and the red carpet everywhere he goes in the country. In Seattle, he got to hang out with Kyle Seeger and some of the other guys, along with making himself at home in the broadcast booth, where he made it pretty clear what he plans to do one day, unseat Aaron, Rick, or Dave. I've got a while to go, but still, I, I really want to be a professional baseball commentator when I grow. He's already got a heck of a start. Earlier this summer, Matt was alongside a number of longtime sports and news journalists invited to the White House to cover a visit by the World Series champion Kansas City Royals. It was pretty awesome. Um, got there, watched a press briefing from Press Secretary Ernest, and then we went into the East Room of the White House where they had tons of cool stuff. The Commissioner's Trophy, the World Series Trophy, was there, and it was another one of my better baseball experiences. Matt's already soared to professional heights. Many journalists worked their whole careers to get even near, all because his mom was simply trying to find a way to get him to write a little bit more. Everything that he does, we've been so proud of him. It's been it, this this whole website and blog has been a big surprise to us. The way that everybody has received it, and he's handled everything with a lot of grace and maturity and he still gets that bright-eyed excited smile on his face when he walks onto a field and goes to a new ballpark so it's it's fun for us to watch and just think since he's only 12 matt can set his sights on even loftier goals like shaving for the mariners sunday magazine i'm josh gerns reporting and finally a conversation on should you or shouldn't you 3-0 pitches. Bone, we're going to talk about a subject that I think you'll like. We're going to talk 3-0 pitches. The green yeah. light. We saw it last night. Kyle Seeger got the green light. It's working. He went yard with it. You look at the Mariners' numbers overall. Pretty good numbers batting. 583 as a group. A couple of long balls. Mm-hmm. Not many at bats. Uh, just 12. But when you consider, you know, if a guy swings and misses or fouls a ball away, it's not, it's not included in, into that. But teams in general don't swing a lot. When it comes to 3-0, and the question is, given those numbers, should they swing more often? Well, I like it. Right, it's been the right guy at the right time, that's for sure. It's worked to our favor. But, um, you know, some guys uh, like to work the count a little bit more. A lot of guys don't like to swing 3-0. Uh, I wasn't a big advocate of swinging 3-0, depending on who the pitcher was, based on a scout report. So, you know... Uh, the last thing you want to do is get a guy back even in the counter, a pitcher, uh, a strike. So certain guys like a Randy Johnson, big hard throws, you know you're going to get a fastball. And then I would cheat and hunt a little bit because the last thing I want to do is get to their secondary pitches and then he haul back to the dugout with the bat under your arm. So you go from 3-0 to uh, walking back going, what the heck just happened? I was in the driver's seat to no. But, um, yeah, I didn't do it that often, but uh, it can definitely, as you've seen, uh, it can uh, be a huge momentum shift, that's for sure. Bone, are you curious what your numbers are swinging 3-0? You know, something tells me you're going to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> There's my yogiism with the Yankees in town. Jay, you are a 429 career hitter swinging 3-0. Hmm. <laughs> also, I ca- how many big flies? Let me find out for you. You, hit you put me. I just. I'm curious. Four, four dingers swinging 3-0, mm, baby. I know one was a granny. So. Oh, really? Milwaukee, but uh, and 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 there were certain situations though. Depending, you know, a lot of times, really and true, the game dictates what's going to happen. Uh, and if you do need to basically get some runs on the board, the best way is to hunt that fastball 
And if you get it in a certain area, let it go. Because that's basically, in a nutshell, what I was paid to do. Hit the ball out of the ballpark and drive and run. So, depending on the situation of the game, yes, I would, I would let it go. Um, but if we had a lead or whatever it was, I, I, I usually would take a pitch. How much do you like the mindset from clearly Scott's service, very comfortable with guys like Kyle Seeger? <laughs> it better be. It's working. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think uh, like any manager, there are, just like the green light on steel in a bag, he gives certain guys the green light to steal, and he gives certain guys the green light to swing it. Something tells me that probably Robbie Cano, Nelly, and Siegs are his three guys that he's going to let swing. Um, and uh, other than that, uh, I think he knows that they're pretty smart and pretty disciplined about where the strike zone is and uh, not giving away in a bat or a swing right there. So uh, right now, this team, it's, it's working for them. I mean, like I said, that was a huge one swing of the bat. Changes the whole momentum. Uh, it's a whole different ball game, yeah. and uh, especially this ball club. I mean, I didn't, I never would have thought this ball club would be where they're at uh, with the amount of home runs they are. So uh, they're 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 definitely uh, a bloop and blast type team, but they can also manufacture some runs for you too. Could you have hit a home run breaking your bat, Bone? Uh, I, I do remember doing it once. Did but, you really? But uh, not like that. That was not a, that bat was basically gone. It broke all the way in half, pretty much. It was hanging by basically a grain. That was pretty impressive. That's what those maple bats do, though. They're so hard. They're almost like petrified wood. So, but the problem is, if is they are so hard that sometimes there will be a crack in it and you not know it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I think it's safe to say that uh, that. That was basically off his knuckles. That was definitely on the label. But it shows you how strong that guy is. And, again, you know, you're, you're looking for a certain location right there. You're looking for a certain pitch. And he was. He came inside. Perfect place to hit it down the line because anywhere else, it's a fly ball out. What do you so, remember that's about That's impressive, though. Mm-hmm. And then to show you, you guys did a nice, nice camera work last night to show that, to show how bad that bat was. That's pretty was, cool. I mean, it was all the way down the middle of the bat. What do you remember about you going yard with a broken bat? I just remembered that it didn't, you know, it rattles in your hand. When you hit uh-huh. one bad, you know. It, it kind of rings your hand a little bit, uh, especially if it's cold out. And, uh, but, again, mine was down the line as well. You hit it any, anywhere else, and, and it's, it's an out. Um, but I also remember that you're, you're begging like crazy as you're around in first place going, please get up, please get up, because I want, I want that baby to die. Hero, come on. I, that bat's a hero for me. Bone for you, 310 career home runs and – Three of them coming in a Yankees uniform as the Yankees are here in town. Yeah. But, but was your most memorable home Game run? Game of the week, man. The one was the ambulance home run. Your yes. most, yes, absolutely. Can you give us? The, can you tell us? And those? I hit one off of John Candelaria at the dead center off the back, off the backdrop out there, which was pretty special too. So I just loved going to Yankee Stadium and sticking it to them. It was there was no better <laughs> feeling in the world. And the great thing was, it wasn't just me. It was a collective group of us. Yeah. It was from the minute we we got on the plane flying to New York City. That lose whole mindset, he became Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. As soon as we were going back to New York to play the Yankees, he was a complete different animal. I mean, I mean, to like four, he just took it to a complete different level. He just, just something about it just brought that out in him and, and a lot of us too. I mean, for whatever reason, I seemed to, you know, get after it a little bit. Edgar did, Junior did. There was a collective group of us. Every time we go Tino, we get in there and we get after it, man, because we knew it was going to be old-fashioned backyard baseball, man. It's meat and potatoes, and there's going to be a little there's, – there's some pretty darn good fights, too, along the way. <laughs> um, and it was a great rivalry. It turned into a great rivalry. It was a lot of fun. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was some great times back then. And I was talking to Rick Sutcliffe, who's, who's here tonight, too. We were talking about uh, the old, old school days and 
the old battles we used to get was it was for whatever reason it was Milwaukee Brewers, the Baltimore Orioles, uh-huh. and the New York Yankees, and inevitably we were always toe to toe on the field at some point, getting grass stains rolling around because we're throwing fists instead of throwing the barrel. In the <laughs> <laughs> but it was good, clean fun, man. Good, Thanks, clean bro. fun. Good stuff. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for swinging by. Yeah. On this edition of At Home, we're going to we're going to read an essay by one of my favorite authors, a great baseball author, Roger Angel. It's called On the Ball, and it goes like this. It weighs just over five ounces and measures between 2.86 and 2.94 inches in diameter. It's made of a composition cork nucleus encased in two thin layers of rubber, one black and one red, surrounded by 121 yards of tightly wrapped blue-gray wool yarn, 45 yards of white wool yarn, 53 more yards of blue-gray wool yarn, and 150 yards of fine cotton yarn, a coat of rubber cement, and a cowhide formerly horsehide exterior, which is held together with 216 slightly raised red cotton stitches, printed certifications, endorsements, and outdoor advertising spherically attest to its authenticity. Like most institutions, it is considered inferior in its present form to its ancient archetypes. And in this case, the complaint is probably justified. On occasion in recent years, it has actually been known to come apart under the demands of its brief but rigorous active career. Baseballs are assembled and hand-stitched in Taiwan. Before this year, the work was done in Haiti. And before 1973 in Chicopee, Massachusetts. And contemporary pitchers claim that there's a tangible variation in the size and feel of the balls that now come into play in a single game. A true peewee is treasured by hurlers and its departure from the premises by fair means or foul is secretly mourned. But never mind, any baseball is beautiful. No other small package comes as close to the ideal in design and utility. It's a perfect object for a man's hand. Pick it up, and it instantly suggests its purpose. It is meant to be thrown a considerable distance, thrown hard and with precision. Its feel and heft are the beginning of the sport's critical dimensions. If it were a fraction of an inch larger or smaller, a few centigrams heavier or lighter, the game of baseball would be utterly different. Hold a baseball in your hand. As it happens, this one is not brand new. Here, just to one side of the curved surgical welt of stitches, there's a pale green grass smudge, darkening on one edge almost to black. The mark of an old infield play, a tough grounder now lost in memory. Feel the ball. Turn it over in your hand. Hold it across the seam or the other way with a seam just to the side of your middle finger. Speculation stirs. You want to go outdoors and throw this spare and sensual object to somebody or at the very least watch somebody else throw it. The game has begun. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. 